0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. This morning, we are going to conclude Romans chapter 5, which has been, indeed, a great joy to walk through. As we've walked through this blessed chapter of Romans, there, we were introduced with this phrase, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... And from that point forward, we have ultimately, ultimately been dealing with the ramifications of justification by faith alone. We've seen that those who are justified have peace with God. We've seen that those who are justified have the great hope of enduring suffering and enduring suffering well, knowing that that suffering produces endurance. We have the great hope of knowing that throughout the justification that God has provided, he will continue to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of his beloved son. We know that because he has justified and because he has sanctified, he will also glorify. He will keep all those that the Father gave him. We know these things because the justification of Jesus Christ is a complete justification. It needs no additive. It is perfect in every capacity. And ultimately what we find in this blessed section of Romans chapter 5 is all of these things really do come to a head. In our final two verses, we have seen the life that is in Christ. We have seen the death in Adam. But I think one of the most important things that we must understand is, okay, now that I am in Christ, now that I have received him by faith, now that I have been justified, that I stand before God free from sin and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, how do I live here? How do I dwell here? What does it mean when sin still abounds? How am I to understand what it means to be standing under the reign of grace and no longer under the reign of sin and ultimately death? And that is what the Apostle Paul deals with this day. And so, as we come to this particular reading, I would ask that you would stand to honor the Word of God. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 18, we'll make our way through verse 21. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. It is the word of God. Romans chapter five, starting in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come rejoicing in this one word, abounded. Lord, that the grace of God abounds. Indeed, it super abounds. There is no means of fleeing from it. The grace of God, when it comes to us in Christ, it comes to us and clothes us and makes us righteous forevermore. And so, Father, we come this day asking, pleading, would you help us to see this? Would you help us to understand the grace that is in Christ? Would you help us to understand its magnitude, its magnificence, that we might come and rejoice and rejoice forevermore, knowing that the grace of God is always abounding in Christ? But, Lord, would you also help us to see that as our trespass comes, as our iniquity is present, Lord, that certainly there should be a heavenly repentance, but remind us amidst our trespass that grace abounds all the more. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Turning your attention to really verse 20 is where we want to begin this morning. And I do think that what you have in this text is is really a comparison and a contrast. It wants you to understand. Paul wants to lay out really what Blake walked through last week. He wants us to understand the distinctions between death in Adam and life in Christ. He wants us to see and to understand that there is something glorious and unique. And it is also very clear in Paul's writing that what he wants us to understand is not just its distinctions, but he wants us to understand that it is distinct in glory and majesty and power and all of the things that would attract our eye. It is indeed more beautiful. In every way. And so, for us to understand this, it is important, first and foremost, for us to understand who our previous master was. And not only who our previous master was, but who and what our sin actually is. Because, brothers and sisters, I'm not sure if you are like me, but I am far too frequent to see sin as something lesser than it actually is. When I consider sin, when I consider trespass, when I consider iniquity, oftentimes they are simple words. Brothers and sisters, they are not words. They are things that place us at enmity with God, they are in rebellion against his will. And as we see all throughout the pages of Holy Scripture, it is sin that deserves death and fury. It deserves God's wrath. His justice will actually conquer all sin. And so when we speak of sin, when we speak of trespass, even in this particular passage, when we speak of disobedience, we are not speaking of something light. We are speaking of the worst possible thing that exists in all creation, And I want you to understand that. When we speak of sin, I know that oftentimes we think of death and we think, oh, death is horrible. Brothers and sisters, death is not as bad as sin. Death is ultimately that which comes forth from sin. Sin is that great wickedness, that great rebellion against God. And ultimately what we see in this passage is Paul hoping to lay out to us how wicked sin actually is. And not only how wicked sin actually is, but the true extent in which we fell in Adam. How truly depraved and wicked we have actually become. How sinful we actually are. And so as we turn our attention to Romans chapter 5, verse 20, I think he begins this argument rather brilliantly. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, immediately you have to understand that what he's doing is now interjecting the Mosaic law. He's saying the law came in for the purpose of increasing the trespass. And this does lead us to ask, I think, a rather important question, what trespass? Because the term here is used in the singular. It's speaking of one particular trespass. And because of the immediate context, I have to assume and I think assume rightly that the trespass that's being spoken of is Adam's trespass. We've already spoken of him as our federal head. We've already spoken of the, the fact that all of us in Adam's sin, that we were once alive in him. And when Adam trespassed, we died in him. You see, the trespass that's spoken of here is Adam's trespass. And this is the singular trespass that plunged man into sin and death forevermore until Christ comes and makes it his footstool. This trespass is incredibly heinous. The rebellion against God transgressing his law, it is indeed heinous altogether. And the penalty for it was incredibly just. God promised that the trespass, the day that Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man would die. And brothers and sisters, whether you see it bodily or not, Adam died that day. He immediately felt the great divide between him and his God. A divide that only his God could reconcile. And not only a divide that only his God could reconcile, but a divide that only the son of God could ultimately mend. And ultimately what we see in this section is that the law came to increase this trespass. It came to make it all the more clear what sin is, and I want to turn your attention really to Romans chapter seven, because I'm largely convinced that what we have in this particular passage is a condensed argument that he will begin to elaborate on really through verses six uh, through chapter six and seven. And the condensed argument I think really is summed up well in Romans chapter seven verse thirteen. It goes on to say, "Did that which is good, speaking of the law that entered in, then bring death to me?" No, he says by no means. The strongest, emphatic no. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so what did the law come to do? The law came to increase the trespass. And I wanna show you two ways that it ultimately does just that. The law came to increase the trespass first and foremost by showing sin to be sin. I want you to consider for a moment covetousness. Let's just take that language because that's what Paul will run with throughout chapters six and seven. When covetousness, when the law of God came and it says, thou shalt not covet immediately in the mind, covetousness becomes a reality. We know what covetousness is. I know that I cannot long for something that is not mine. Brothers and sisters, if we were, go, if we were to go back to the garden and we can see quite clearly, that's exactly what Adam did. Adam was covetousness of something that God had not given unto him. He wanted something. And what did he ultimately want? He wanted to, as the serpent said, to become like God. He was covetous. And the law comes and says, thou shalt not covet. And all of a sudden, we know quite clearly that sin is indeed sin. Covetousness is sin. Or let's take a couple of other options. Honor thy father and mother that it is a great trespass not to honor thy father and mother, children. As a matter of fact, should we read through the Old Testament, we will not only see that it is a great sin and trespass, but we also see that it is a capital offense. You must honor thy father and mother. And yet there is something in us when the law comes and tells us, shall honor your father and mother that immediately there is rebellion that is birthed in. It is not the law producing sin in you. It is the law revealing sin in you. It is the law making it abundantly clear that you are indeed sinful beyond measure. Or let's consider lying. Do not bear false witness as the law of God commands. Why must we not bear false witness? We must not bear false witness because it is contrary to the God that created us. We bear his image. Our God does not lie. He never deceives. He has spoken only truth. His saying is indeed his doing. And then we as image bearers, as the law of God comes and says, thou shalt not bear false witness, we go forth bearing false witness, profaning his image. The law of God comes and it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. And all of a sudden, lying comes to our tongue quite quickly. You think I must lie. A little white lie. It's not anything too severe. Or perhaps sexual immorality, you consider that one. The law goes on to say, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and if we can see anything in our own hearts, and certainly in our day, you tell us not to, and we will find an almost infinite of ways to pervert it. The law of God comes and it shows sin to be just that it shows it to be sin. But then it does something a bit different. And I think this is really what we're getting after here it shows how deeply sin has a snare on us. Isn't it interesting? We see this even in children. And I said I wasn't going to use this illustration because it's so incredibly cliche. But isn't it interesting as you tell a child, do not cross that line immediately, the only thing in their mind is I must cross that line. I must trespass. That button you're not supposed to touch, I have to touch it. That's ultimately what the law of God is doing in us. It is revealing, it is showing that there is something deep in us, that that sin is indeed an indwelling sin. Brothers and sisters, here's what you must understand. When we fell in Adam, we fell far. We did not fall just a little bit in the sense that we are, we are just a little bit worse for wear. Instead, it is quite clear that we fell and plummeted into sin into such a degree that sin is now a part of our nature. And what does the law of God do? The law of God looks at you and it says, you are sinful beyond measure. Here is law, go forth and break it essentially. If it is given, then I know with great certainty that it will be trespassed. And not only will it be trespassed, it seems as though every time a law is given, sin gives birth to this. It seizes the opportunity and it says, I will show the true depravity of my heart. I'll show how wicked I am. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, again, it says, it says, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Brothers and sisters, if we look at this passage and we say that the law came to increase the trespass and we don't find ourselves on the back end of this without saying I am sinful beyond measure, then we have missed the purpose altogether. And here's what's vitally important for us because we're gonna get into the beauty of God's grace. But hear me, if you do not understand yourself to be sinful beyond measure, you will never savor the grace of God rightly because you think you're just a little lesser than Adam. He fails certainly, but you can muster up something in and of yourself. You can be good enough. No, you can't. You're at enmity with God. The scripture over and over again makes this abundantly clear. You need someone to redeem you and not only to redeem you, but to give you a new nature, a new spirit, a new birth. And so what must we say? We must say with Paul that I'm sinful beyond measure, that the law came, identified sin to me, as the law came and identified sin, sin seizing the opportunity said, go do it. And here's what's tragic. We went forth and did it gladly. Do not be mistaken in the sense that certainly, as we will see in a minute, sin is a slave master But do not believe for a moment that you are not a glad slave. Before Christ came, opened your eyes to see his beauty and his loveliness. Were you angry when you sinned? Did you feel that great conviction of the Spirit? No, you were a slave to sin. And brothers and sisters, you delighted in it. You see, we fell in Adam. And ultimately, what the law of God does is it looks at you and it says, you are just like your father. And it says it loudly and clearly. Lest we look back at Adam and say, ah, you trespassed, fool. Brothers and sisters, if the whole human race got together and elected one to represent us, we would have chosen Adam because he was indeed, rightly so, the best of us. And he fell and we fell in him. You ate of the tree. You coveted. You trespassed the law of God. And lest you think that you were a bit better, God lays out in his great grace many of the great moral, holy nature of who he is codified. And he said, watch how you are like your father, Adam. And so we say, yes, we are sinful beyond measure. Yes, we are just like our father, Adam. And this is a very important backdrop because if we don't understand this, we will not understand what's to come. And so perhaps it is this day you think to yourself, ah, I'm not so sinful. Brothers and sisters, that that causes in me great trembling for you. Because the saint says, I am sinful beyond measure. And so I would plead with you, understand this. Look at the law of God for a moment. How well are you doing? And I can assure you, if you'd like me to give you the answer to the question, you are not doing particularly well. And even if you think you're doing well in some categories, you have broken at bare minimum one. And if you have broken the one, you have broken them all. The tables are shattered. And then he goes on. And he says this, and I want to kind of bring this into us because I really think what Paul is doing here is he's taking the Roman church. He's laid out justification by faith alone. He's laid out new life in Christ. And then he's still dealing with individuals who have sin, trespass, and iniquity. And perhaps you're like me. These two, these things are still, uh, the old man is still quite alive. There's still remnants of him left. And I look forward to the great day when he dies altogether. But he still looks at these people and he knows they're justified. They have new life in Christ. They're free from the death in Adam. And then there is this understanding of, well, how do we deal with sin today? And and as the law comes to increase the trespass, the text goes on to say, but where sin increased, the law was given so that you might see sin and sin increase. And then ultimately there is this next phrase, grace increased all the more. But before we get there, we must understand what it means when it says, but but where sin increased. And if I could make a brief, maybe personal application and just how vast is your sin? Let's take this on a personal level, if you will. Can you count them? Can you count them this week, this morning? How many sins did you commit before you were converted, brother or sister in Christ? How great was that trespass? How frequent? What great quantity? What great severity? Can you give any recollection and what's really interesting about this is it seems quite clear that the answer for each and every saying is I can never count them because they are without measure. And perhaps we can go forth and ask maybe another question. How many lies have you told since you were converted? How many times have we skirted the truth for our own personal gain? How much trespass have we actually committed? How many lies? How much deceit? Or maybe yet, how much covetousness remains in your heart to this day? Do you still long for that which is not yours? Perhaps it is you still in some capacity are like your father Adam and like to be God before him. Because this old man, though he be, fighting for life, conquered in Christ, he still is present. Or how many sins have you committed just this morning? Before you arrived, you've made your way here, driving in this town might get you to a couple. <laughs> but we don't know the number or severity of our sins. And here's the great reality that I think the law of God sets forth for us. As long as we draw breath, our sin will be increasing. As long as we draw breath, our sin will be increasing. As long as we stand in this flesh, unperfected, unmade like our Lord Jesus Christ in glorification, there is still remnants of sin in us and we still go on sinning. The sin does indeed increase. And I think that leads us to ask a very important question because as you read through this and I think about my own sin, I think about the reality that yes, I've been justified in Christ, but I also know that those who sin deserve wrath and fury. As it goes on in chapter 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. And I'm sitting here and I'm wondering, when will my, when will my death come? When will it arrive for me? Because even if I'm reading through just these simple questions, I can't stand up to my own measurements How much less so can I stand up to God's? I mean, considering how wicked I actually am, when will my death come? And I think the question is, why are we not totally dismayed at the reality that my sin will increase all the more throughout my life? That there will still be trespass in me when I'm on my deathbed at whatever point in my life that may come. Why am I not dismayed? I'm not dismayed because this text does not say, but where sin increases, so condemnation increased all the more. Which is seemingly the natural reading, isn't it? If I were to take the justice of God and run this through and understand the Mosaic law and clearly lay that out for us, the the, the very clear reading of this text would be, but where sin increased, condemnation increased. That's not what the text says. Why are we not dismayed? Why are we not dismayed at the reality that there is still indwelling sin in us, though we be alive in Christ and free from the bondage to sin in Adam? Because where sin increased, grace increases all the more. Brothers and sisters, as you go forth and as you think of this, consider for a moment those moments in your life where you think, oh, this sin is so great. I will never be free. I will never be forgiven. Know this, that in that moment, grace abounds more. Grace abounds infinitely more. It is almost as though what Paul is saying, and actually in the original language, it perhaps would better read, that grace superabounds, that it triumphs over it. And so let's consider those questions once again. How much sin did you commit before you were converted? Though you know number nor severity, God's grace is more. How many lies have you told since then? Grace abounds. The grace of God comes and it always triumphs. And I think perhaps better yet for us to say that as long as we draw breath, our sin is increasing, and brothers and sisters in Christ, we should never deny that reality, but we should always have this glorious refrain on the end, but God's grace is more. I have trespassed the law of God. I will breathe out sin to the day that I die, but God's grace is more. It triumphs over it. It superabounds. Paul's argument, in a nutshell, from this very brief yet dense sentence, is you cannot outsend the grace of God. Dear Saint, you think I am wicked. Praise be to God, you think I am wicked. And perhaps it is you feel that bondage of sin, that it's still that lasting remnant of sin within you. And you say, how can I be free? How can I be released from this? Hear the gospel preached. God's grace abounds. You are, even though there still be that lasting remnant, as you taste that lasting remnant, as you know that this sin that will eventually die, know this, the grace of God will never perish. It was bought for you in Christ Jesus. There will never be a sin that will remove you from fellowship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ stood in that gap on that cursed tree. Brothers and sisters, we live unto God. It is a fearful grace that we speak of because I am reminded over and over again that as I sin, I, I stand before him and I think I need to be cast out. And he says, no, come to my table and eat live. And so the grace of God abounds. The grace of God abounds all the more. You see, these two realities, the law came to increase the trespass. I am like my father, Adam. But grace abounds. Grace abounds because I am no longer under this reign of sin and death. And that ultimately is where Paul lands us this day. Because as you go forth in this text, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Then he goes on, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there are many people who would read this text, and they would be of the utmost foolishness thought possible and say, Ah, then let's go on sinning. Well, let's remember what the reign of sin actually is. Let's have this in our minds as we think and meditate upon the fact that as sin increases, grace increases all the more, and the saints of God rejoice and rejoice rightly. But let's remember who our former master was. Because this word reign literally means to be sovereign over, to rule, to be the king. And what does this text say? It says, so that as sin reigned in death. What is sin doing? Sin is reigning. How is sin reigning? Sin is reigning first and foremost through Adam's trespass. I want you to pay attention to Romans chapter 5 verse 17. You see this language set forth for if because of one man's trespass, speaking of our father Adam's rebellion against God in the garden, death reigned through that one man. And it's almost as though throughout this section, what you have is this unmasking of what the true wickedness actually is. Because those who have been reading through and studying the book of Romans have seen that death is the great enemy and death's mask is removed. And behind him you see Adam. Adam fell and since Adam fell, then I will die. And then Adam is pulled back and what is that great culprit? It is sin. And it rains. How does it rain? It rains through Adam's trespass. The moment that Adam fell, we fell in him. And we have been captive to sin ever since until the Lord Jesus rescued us, if you be in him this day. So sin reigned. Sin reigned through Adam. Not only does sin reign; sin reigned as a deceiver. Romans chapter 7 verse 11 says, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me through it killed me. How like our father Adam are we? What does sin still do? It deceives. What a wicked and cruel master it is. It invites you to come to partake to enjoy and all that you find on the other side is sand in your mouth. You still need water. You still need food. I think of that moment in the Pilgrim's Progress when Christian looks at Apolly and he says, he says, I must leave your kingdom. Apollyon asks, why? He said, because your wages are not such that a man can live on. he says, the wages of sin is death. Brothers and sisters, what we see in this wicked reign of sin is that it deceives, it deceives and offers pleasure that it can never give. And it invites us to come and eat and all that it offers us on the other side is death. And it reigns certainly as a tyrant. And I think that this is vitally important for us to understand. Brothers and sisters, sin's reign is quite effective. Have you ever considered this? That sin's reign is astonishingly effective. It literally took God incarnate the true God, true man, to dwell amongst us, be made like his brothers in every way to come release us from sin's snare, from Adam's fall. It is a mighty foe, but not before our king. He has rescued us, most certainly, but we must see, we must understand that sin's reign is a tyrannical one. It invites us, it says, it demands that we be slaves of sin. And we must be reminded, lastly, that sin's reign is a reign of death. It only leads to this one thing there is no sin, as we consider this in a spiritual sense, there is no sin that does not lead to spiritual death if you are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Should you trespass the law of God? Should you be in bondage to this sinful, wicked master of sin? Then you will find yourself on that last day dead. And unfortunately, it is a very conscious death. It is a death of eternality. It is a death of separation. It is a death promised to you by sin. And you will have it. For the wages of sin is indeed death. In short, if we could summarize sin's reign, we must say that it is a violent and bloody reign. It is a reign that longs to have cattle that will become food. Sin's reign is heinous and wicked and powerful and deceptive. And this is the state every natural man is born into. Every natural man. Because every natural man says, Adam is my father, whether he profess it with his lips or not. But thankfully, that is not the conclusion of this text. We are reminded that though sin reigned in death, we also have this really lovely language that's set forth, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to see these two things. And I really hope that what's happening in your mind is that this reign of Christ, this reign of grace, is set off and made radiant and beautiful by the reality that the only other option is being enslaved to sin and its reign, its power ultimately being in death. And so what do we have? We have a better reign. Now let's take that exact same word that we found in the previous section. What does it mean to reign? It means that this is the king, the supreme ruler, the sovereign over this kingdom, if you will. And so let's ask the question then, how does grace reign? Grace ultimately reigns, as the text says, through righteousness. The very first thing that we must see is the reign of grace looks at the sinner and declares that sinner righteous. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, as we've we've walked through this, the law came to increase the trespass, sin increased as the law came, and then in the reign of grace, completely contrary to the reign of sin that ultimately leads to death, in the reign of grace, God looks at the sinner, knowing all of their sin, trespass, and iniquity, and having by his grace nailed it to the tree, as Colossians would say, and looks at them and says, justly so, righteous. He looks at them. This is the reign of grace. This is the king of this blessed land of being in Christ. He looks at the sinner because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and declares them righteous, perfect, holy, radiant. The reason you can come to this table is because God in his infinite grace declared you righteous. It is not for the unrighteous. It is only for the righteous. The reign of grace is ultimately a reign that comes through righteousness. And not only does it come through righteousness, but the second aspect of this is that if you be under this reign of grace and thus declared righteous, then you must then receive the rewards for the righteous. You must. If God is just, and brothers and sisters, we can say with great certainty that he is, and the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Now, what is the reward for the righteous? Well, Paul's actually already told us in Romans chapter 2, peace and life eternal. So, what do we receive ultimately under this reign of grace? The scripture goes on to say grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to what? Eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of the reign of grace is that it not only declares you righteous, it then treats you as if you are. Because, in the truest sense of the word, you are. You are. This is the beauty of justification by faith alone. It is not an infused righteousness where we clothe ourselves and make ourselves more beautiful from time to time. It is an imputed righteousness. It means that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, who does he see? He sees the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Third, grace's reign reigns through Jesus's act of righteousness. I want to turn your attention back up. It says in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So let's consider then for a moment, sin reigned in death. So sin is reigning through the one trespass that led to condemnation for all men. That's the reign of Adam. And then we had the second phrase. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life of all men. What is this one act of righteousness? It is the perfect, glorious, finished work of Jesus Christ. And certainly we can see it compiled into a singular moment, the glorification of the Son when he was lifted up on the tree to die in our stead. But brothers and sisters, we must also say that it is every moment before fulfilling, filling as it were, that cup of righteousness that he would give us to drink and drink to our fill. He offers us this. He grants us this. This is the reign of grace. The reign of grace is a reign that declares sinners righteous. The reign of grace is a reign that demands eternal life for those who have been declared righteous. And ultimately, the reign of grace is a reign that comes only through Jesus Christ. In short, grace's reign through righteousness is one of peace and all peace, life and all life. And perhaps you ask yourself the question, because we've already spoken of it in regard to the reign of sin and death. How do you get here? I think this is a vitally important question. How is it that I go from being enslaved to sin under the reign of death, ultimately sin? How is it that I arrive inside of this blessed reign of grace? Well, it's rather simple. Just as the natural birth places you in Adam and thus under the reign of sin, so too the heavenly birth places you in Christ and thus under the reign of grace. You must be born again. The reason that John 3 is so explicit in regard to the new birth, you can't see, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you be born again, is because you must be born again to be freed from the slavery that you had in Adam. And to be born again, as we'll go on to see next week, you must die. How will you die? Brothers and sisters, if you'd be born again, then Christ died in your place. Christ set you free from bondage to sin, from bondage to death. And he brought you into this blessed reign of grace. But I do think there is one more rather important point. I want you to notice, you kind of have this duality laid out. You have the law coming to increase the trespass. You have sin reigning in death. Sin ultimately being the fountainhead, if you will, of death. But as you go forward, ultimately what you see in verse 21, even, if we, even as we've considered this blessed reign of grace, we must go forth and consider, as it goes on in verse 20, to say, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as sin is the fountainhead of death, Christ is the fountainhead of life. Christ is the fountainhead of the reign of grace. It all flows forth from him. When we sinned in Adam, we were treated as sinners. Certainly we would go back and we would say, I am just like my father Adam. If I be under the reign of sin and death, then I should rightly say I am just like my father Adam. But the reign of grace does something rather unique because the reign of grace always looks at you and justly says, you are just like my son, Jesus Christ, righteous in every way.